Hello, 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 my name is Mike Searson. I am with Live Your Life Learning, learning to make your life better. This week will be an interview with Neil King Jr. Neil King Jr. has had a remarkable journey as a Washington reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He earned a Pulitzer Prize for the 9-11 coverage. We will talk about some of his experiences of being a reporter, as well as his new book called American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. In the book, he talks about his 26-day, 330-mile journey as he walks from his home from Washington, D.C. to New York City. The book is available on Amazon. It was rated 4.7 out of 5 stars. 78% of the readers who left reviews gave it a 5-star rating. I will provide a link on how a person can purchase the book from a link to Amazon in the podcast and YouTube channel description areas. Now on to the interview. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Live Your Life Learning. I have uh, Neil King here with me, and we'll just go ahead and get started. You have a very impressive background, by the way. So we'll just go ahead and go through the questions that we have. I do appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. You have a career as a uh, Washington reporter with the uh, Wall Street Journal. Now, I guess my first question is, how did you become interested in being a reporter? So that that's a good question. You know, your, your podcast is living and learning. I did a lot of living and learning through my 20s. I drove a cab in New York City as a student at Columbia. I lived out west. I was a waiter in Santa Fe and worked in a lot of restaurants in San Francisco. I was a private investigator in the Bay Area. I thought through that whole span, I considered myself really to be a writer. I did a lot of writing, but not in an organized way. So I went to journalism school, graduate school at Northwestern. Um, I ended up um, getting a job in journalism in Tampa, Florida. Um, I ended up going overseas to Prague in the early 90s when that was sort of a place to go. My soon-to-be wife and I went over there together. We became stringers, essentially, for the Wall Street Journal. They were looking for people to cover in Eastern Europe. We were well-poised to do that. Uh, within a year or so, they had brought us on as full-time correspondents for the Wall Street Journal based in Prague. Um, covering all of Eastern Europe after a little while. Uh, we were moved to Brussels. You know, fast forward, we then came to Washington um, right towards the end of the Clinton administration. And, um, you know, I remained at the journal altogether for about 20 years. I was the chief diplomatic correspondent. I covered uh, terrorism after uh, up to and after 9-11. I was our uh, national security reporter. That's what I was doing when the, you know, the jets hit the World Trade Centers. And um, I, I changed my beat a number of times. I then became a national political reporter. I covered a number of presidential campaigns. Um, I then covered the international oil industry. And at the end of my time there, I was the um, global economics editor, ran a whole team of reporting, reporters covering um, the global economic um, you know, topic and the U.S. economy, and then I left the journal at the end of uh, 2016. Hey, wow, a variety of experiences there. Um, so you may have already addressed this. You've already addressed this already. But how did you how did you become a reporter specifically for the Wall Street Journal? Um, I know you addressed that a little bit in the prior question. 
Yeah, so it was a matter of luck and serendipity. In a lot of ways, we showed up in Prague, my soon-to-be wife and I. Um, the journal was looking for some correspondence to cover the Czech and Slovak and East European scene. We were there. We signed on with them, um, you know, at a really amazing period for covering a whole wildly expanding and opening economic sphere in Eastern Europe. And off we went. And so that was really the full launch of our international careers in particular was over there. Okay, great. And I know you've covered a lot of different topics. Uh, the one I was interested in getting more details is I know you covered the 9-11 occurrence. For those that may not know, 9-11 was where terrorists attacked the uh, United States on September 11, 2001. Terrorists took over four commercial flights. And the, the basically what happened is the four commercial flights became weapons. Two commercial flights uh, attacked the World Trade Center. Uh, one commercial flight attacked uh, the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. And one plane crashed in western Pennsylvania. Uh, people in the plane, on that plane fought uh, back and stopped it from hitting one of its intended targets. But did you want to describe uh, your experience in covering 9-11? Yeah, I mean, we had a big meeting that morning, just, um, you know, that was a weekly meeting at the Washington Bureau. And uh, I was one of two people who were covering national security, terrorism-related things. I was the first person at the Wall Street Journal who had actually written a profile of Osama bin Laden. That was a couple of years before that. And so that morning, you know, we're watching CNN and a plane hits one of the World Trade Centers. And then, you know, 45 minutes, 50 minutes later, another plane hits the other Trade Center. And of course, we realized this was no accident. And, um, you know, the whole world had been upended in the span of that hour. And, um, the two of us, David Cloud and I, were the main people thrust into covering the terrorism side of the story. And, you know, it was a wild day because the Wall Street Journal's international headquarters were part of the World Trade Center complex, not the two towers, but some smaller towers. So those buildings were evacuated. And in a lot of ways, we put out the paper from the Washington Bureau, among other places. Um, so that was a day to remember as it was for everybody and a quite extraordinary series of events for us to cover um, both in Washington and out of New York. I read and researched that your coverage of the 9-11 uh, coverage was recognized. What, was it what did it feel like to win the Pulitzer Prize for your 9-11 coverage? Well, it felt great. You know, it was a team effort. It was a wild incredibly tumultuous day for the paper as a whole and a whole team of us had to um you know leap to the occasion and cover that day and its events having lost our main offices downtown people dispersed all over we had to resituate so it was you know an emergency setting to cover what was a national and global emergency so it was very gratifying to have won that Pulitzer as a team um, working under very unusual circumstances. Great. Now let's go ahead and change our focus to a book that you have out. Uh, yes. The book is called uh, American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. It's about your, I believe it's your 26, it's it, what it describes as your 26 day, 330 mile journey where you walk from your home in Washington, D.C. to New York City. 
Uh, I guess I would like to ask a few questions about that. And uh, the first question would be, what inspired you to do the walk? <laughs> so I live uh, nine blocks east of the U.S. Capitol on Capitol Hill. And um, years before I took the walk, you know, the idea sort of just struck me. Um, what if I were to walk out my door and either take a right or a left and chart my way um, up to New York City in a fairly direct way what would the the pedestrian um, experience of that uh, stretch of the land uh, feel like because it's a very congested part of the country you know known for its i-95 and for the acela and for those who choose to fly the you know national airport to laguardia or whatever but it's a very competitive brisk um, congested part of the of the national geography and i was like great what if I were to walk it? And for that matter, back in the long ago days, what were the routes that those who decided to walk it or to ride a horse or to take a carriage pre you know, railroad, what that, what were those routes like? And so, you know, it had stuck in my mind for years. I kept thinking about it. I kept looking at the various um, ways that people had done it. How had George Washington gotten to his inauguration from Mount Vernon to uh, Lower Manhattan. Um, what route did he take? So as the time went by, the, the idea got more interesting. I immersed myself more in what it might look like. Um, I made then increasingly elaborate plans to actually set off and do it. And I had resolved then to walk out my door on the 26th of March of 2020 and here was this elaborate plan, and lo and behold, you know, a virus came up and made laid low those bold plans as it laid low all of our bold plans for the spring of 2020. And um, so I had to reconfigure, and I gave myself another year. I figured, well, what about the end of March of 2021? And then I watched, you know, all kinds of extraordinary events, political, social uh, medical, you know, play out. And as it turns out, the difference between walking out my door at the end of March of 2020 and doing it at the end of 2021 was a world of difference. The whole world had changed dramatically. And so then I walked out my door into a very different America. Okay, great. I know that you've dealt with this, uh, some elements on this in the previous question, but uh... When did you get the idea for a walk? Did it happen all of a sudden or was it more, as you mentioned, more of maybe like a gradual process where you got the pieces together? Uh, I would say yes, both. <laughs> it wasn't all of a sudden, like, hey, I really should do this. It became, it started kind of as a, as a joke almost to myself, like, what if I were to do this? Wouldn't that be strange? How would it, what would it look like? And then as um, I resolved to do it. I made the plan. I decided on the route. Um, then it became, it morphed into something in many ways different, more of a exploration of our history, of our past, an examination of one single spring. And then when it was put off into the spring of 2021, it became in many ways a close examination of our country, um, what we were going through at a given time, and all of these um, topics that have been thrust to the forefront, like who deserves to stand on a statue, 
what is it that we are as a country from our earliest days? Um, what were the core elements of our foundation, our founding? You know, were we intrinsically a good country founded on ideals of freedom, et cetera, et cetera? Or were we from the beginning a somewhat sketchier mission founded on principles of slavery and forced labor? And there too, I think the answer is both. And, um, you know, I gave myself essentially a month to walk out my door and examine up close and with a high level of attentiveness um, some of these core elements, not just of our history, but of questions of how is it that we spend our lives? Um, what do we devote our time to? What's, um, you know, a good way to, um, to go about our allotted time? And, you know, I'd gone through some health scares. I'd had a stretch where I thought I might not be granted my sixth decade. And, um, and lo and behold, I should, yeah, my 60s, I should say. And um, so that also put a different spin, a different twist on, um, on the time when it was that I actually did walk out my door and go examine this stretch of 330 miles of our countryside. Great to know. Um, again, you dealt with some of these elements previously in some of your prior questions, but do you want to give more details about how did you plan your trip? Um, how did you decide what places to visit when you did your walk? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, I had spent, because I was granted this extra year, I was able to immerse myself even more in the travel log, um, you know, thick batch of um, memoirs and the like that so many people had written in the earliest decades of the country, um, which was very interesting. And there's a huge number of these accounts in which people would go out mainly from Boston or New York down to Washington, maybe down to Charleston, um, and look at the country and say, what to make of this place? You know, Alexis de Tocqueville came and did that. Charles Dickens came and did that. A multitude of men and women came to do various versions of what I then set out to do, which was to go out and to look in detail at the countryside and the people that I would meet along the way. So that was essentially my uh, methodology. I meanwhile had determined after thinking of a lot of different routes, what would be the most story rich and meaning rich um, route that I could take. And I decided I would go north across the Mason-Dixon line um, at one of its most important inflection points on my way to York um, County in Pennsylvania and the town of York and from then across the Susquehanna to the town of Lancaster and Lancaster County, which was rich with all kinds of stories of the Anabaptists, the Mennonites and Amish who had settled there, and across that way through Pennsylvania, down to Valley Forge, you know, on to um, Pennsylvania, sorry, to, to uh, Philadelphia itself, which is to say that as I plotted my route, I went where the stories were, and I went where there were things to extract that were meaningful and that said something about why we decide to care about when and so on. So I, it was a mixture of a lot of very elaborate planning for where I would stay, what kinds of bed and breakfasts or Airbnbs 
I wasn't going to be camping out. So I kind of meticulously laid out that whole thing along the way. And I went where I went to the places that spoke to me, basically. That's great. Uh, in your travels, you actually had a quote that I was interested in getting more information about. You had a quote that went something like this. Do not conform to the world, but transform yourself through a renewal, if I have that correct. Uh, did you want to give some more details and some background about it? Yeah, that was a big moment. So I was in Lancaster County. I had left Lancaster itself and entered this, you know, Anabaptist um, part of Pennsylvania, a very rich area for a kind of an ongoing experiment that went back to the uh, European Reformation. And for that matter, the arrival of these people then, the Amish and the Mennonites, who had been pushed out of, um, of parts of Germany and Switzerland and um, because of their religious practices, and they had ended up in this area of um, Pennsylvania. So on this day, I'm walking up a road. I see these kids playing softball. I go out in their playground. They're these Mennonite kids, eighth and ninth graders, the women, the young women, the girls, dressed in these long floral dresses with these white head bonnets on, unbelievably good, very aggressive softball players playing with these boys. And I watched them play and was astonished at how good they were. And at the end of the game, they all came over and were fascinated by my being there. And their teacher, Neil Weaver, asked me to tell the kids, there were about 25 of them, what I was doing. And we engaged in a great conversation. And one of the young women said, Mr. Weaver, what if we were to sing for Mr. King? And they invited me into their school, the Farmersville Mennonite School. And they got on their risers in the basement and they sang these two extraordinary hymns of the afterlife to me, which were sort of their thanking, thankfulness for my having been there on that day and my, you know, gratitude for the way they lived their lives. And when they went up afterwards to go back to their class, Neil stayed behind and I asked him, so tell me about the Mennonites, what makes you tick? What are your core principles? And he said, well, we are non-confrontational. We are pacifist people. We don't engage in wars. We don't engage in lawsuits and the like. And we are non-conformists. We look at the world and we determine what we like about certain things that are happening and what things we don't want to be part of, essentially. And then he quoted this line from St. Paul to the Romans, a letter from St. Paul that's part of the New Testament. And it was, um, do not conform to this world, but refresh yourself through a renewal of your mind. And which was very germane, I, I think, in a lot of ways to your own podcast, which is engage in a constant sense of, or, or spirit of renewal of yourself, of your spirit. Um, and don't just let the world form you. You be an active former of yourself. And when he said that and quoted that line, it really rang a bell to me because it was very much what my own walk was about, was go out your door, look at the world, um, look at it as, as though through fresh eyes, um, make up your own mind about what it is that these people that you meet along the way are doing 
And, uh, you know, that was very much what had happened in that instance. And they welcomed me into their school. They sang for me. Neil Weaver, you know, tossed this line to me that very much formed a lot of aspects of the walk going forward and have actually become a kind of credo of mine going forward since then. And, you know, I have kept in touch with them. I've been back a multitude of times to their school. I did a big event there after the book came out. I've remained in touch with Neil, with a number of these students, with their family. And so it's been a kind of active, ongoing renewal. It's great to hear. Uh, so a lot of this probably already was answered in the, this prior question I just asked you, but um, did you want to give more details what it was like to have students sing to you when you were doing, were you expecting that on your walking journey? No, not at all. I mean, I, there was, you know, my, my, the walk was a mixture of planning. I had planned that afternoon to go meet uh, an archivist, Mennonite archivist who had these great books that are called the Martyr's Mirror, and that was my destination that day. But as walks will go, you have your destination for the day, or a multitude of destinations for the day, and then you have your grander destination of where the walk is itself going. But then things happen, and those things in their own right become their own destinations you didn't know about. And no, I had no anticipation of having met these kids gone into that school, meeting Neil Weaver. And yet, when it all played out the way it did, it just was so, um, you know, extraordinary how they were thanking me for being there. They were singing these, you know, these are eighth and ninth graders on a beautiful spring day. And they're singing about their kind of longing for time after death, which struck me as strange. And Neil himself actually kind of laughed about it later because, no, they're not wanting to die. But on the other hand, you know, this is built into their worldview. Um, and um, it was the whole of it was just a great series of, of lessons, kind of ongoing lessons. And the whole day was jam-packed with things like that. And it just, you know, look, it's evidence of what can happen if you walk out your door with a very firm, um, kind of resolve to be kind of radically open to the people that you meet, non-judgmental about what it is that they're doing with their own lives, open to gaining some, you know, inspirations from the people that you encounter. And they responded to me, you know, I was there in an open way, fascinated about them. In turn, they were fascinated about me, and they sang these songs to me as an act of recognition of our having kind of hit it off, you know. And uh, it was a great mixture all the way around. That's great to interesting to hear. Um, you've dealt with some of this stuff already in the prior question, but did you want to give in, did you want to go through some more details about how you would have sometimes your planned events, but then you would have your unexpected events on your journey? You know, the whole of the walk was a mixture of of those two forces. I didn't just embark willy-nilly and hope that things would fall into place. I had put all this kind of prior thought into, okay, I'm going to meet this man who's fascinated with uh, um, these petroglyphs that were carved in these rocks in the Susquehanna River. He took me out on his boat and he showed me 
these thunderbirds and snakes and all these various carvings that the um, Susquehannocks had done a thousand years ago. And that was an extraordinary day, Easter Sunday. You know, I went into Lancaster itself and met with the people that tend to the history there. And that was a great experience of understanding some of the kind of tectonic plates that are moving within our appreciation of American history. And then the next day, I go into that part of Lancaster County on my way to meet the archivist, to talk about the martyr's mirror and to see other things. And lo and behold, I stumble upon these kids. The next day, I was off to go to a house that I had found out about that had been lived in for, at that point, 10 generations of the same family, going back to pre-revolutionary days, um, a German American family that had come under very unusual circumstances. I end up meeting a farrier, a horseshoer, and spent 45 minutes in his barn as he shooed a fellow Mennonite's horse. And we had a fantastic discussion, conversation while on my way to meeting the Fry family. And kind of every day played out that way for the most part. There were some days I didn't have a fixed kind of set of appointments, I guess you would say, and other things would fall into place to sort of take that uh, that vacuum, I guess. And the whole of the walk was really like that. It was, okay, I know where I'm going, or I'm going to meet this person at Valley Forge, an historian who's going to tell me and walk me through the story of why that place matters to us now, that grim winter of 1777-78. And so there would be a day that would have these things built in, but then other things would um, come up, come about me fishing on a stream that I hadn't really planned to fish on, and so on. And the whole of the 26-day walk to New York was a mixture of serendipitous things happening, planned things happening, and both of them having their own kind of richness. And it's what, you know, magically made the whole of that walk um, just a time unlike other times for me personally. And I like to argue, you know, to readers, to listeners, that if they are so called to go out on a similar ramble, a similar walk, um, I'm pretty confident that other similarly magical things will happen to, to you. It's interesting to hear that actually that last ans- that last part of that last answer actually leads into the next question, which was, um, what advice would you give a person thinking about their own long distance walk somewhere in the United States? You know, um, it's pretty simple from my outlook, and it doesn't have to be 26 days. It doesn't have to be 300 miles. It could be longer. It could be much shorter. But the the basic principle of it is, in my mind, um, you determine a place within your state, maybe in another state, um, that is meaningful to you, meaningful to your own fascination about the country, about your region. Um, And I, you know, I am positive that no part of the country is lacking in such places. And I could give many, many recommendations. I myself am really interested in walking to Harper's Ferry. I'm really interested in walking to Richmond, Virginia. Um, You know, there's just a multi-dimension walking from New York up to Walden Pond. 
um, I'm interested in doing a walk from possibly Plymouth Rock to Walden Pond. So, you know, you could go on, I could go on and on any part of the West, of the Middle West, of the South, of the Southwest. Um, and then, though, this is the important part, I think, give yourself time, months, to do a real thoughtful study of, you know, the geology in between, the geography, the human history of the places in between. And so when you go out your door, you're bringing meaning with you. And I say in the book that my experience is that the more meaning you bring with you in your mind, in your the prior study, the more meaning the places give you in return, the people you meet, the places you encounter, the rivers you come upon, all of that. And there's such a rich tapestry of, of you know, every time I came to a major river, the Susquehanna, the Delaware, the Hudson, these are, you know, sacred places and places that have their own deep um, geographical, geological history. You know, the Susquehanna is like the fifth oldest river in the world. Um, and, you know, it predates the North America as we know it in its current configuration. And um, so you then set out on your ramble, your pilgrimage, and and um, being so pre-armed, um, all of it is going to be so much more significant. Um, so that's my basic advice. That's great to hear. Can I ask some questions here about the walk itself here, if that's okay? Um, the next question would be, what did you like about the walk? Was there any, you mentioned some other, you mentioned some events already that you enjoyed, but was there other events that you enjoyed or did you have uh, some collective thoughts about the stuff that you enjoyed walking? Or do you have some collective thoughts about some of the um, stuff that you enjoyed along the walk? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could go on and on about, you know, 26 days uh, being filled with a multitude of so many different uh, things that came out of nowhere or, you know, kind of wondrous doors I was able to open because I had given it a lot of thought in advance. And, you know, my encounter, for instance, with I-95, the, the Jersey Turnpike, and, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of research just looking at Google Maps and Google Satellite on where exactly I wanted to have my personal confrontation, I guess you might even say, with you know, that major artery for carrying people at 60, 70, 80 miles an hour up and down the East Coast. And so I'd settled on this town of Cranberry, New Jersey, and I could tell it was a very quaint historical place, but right to the east of it were all of these huge warehouses, Wayfair, Amazon, Home Depot, all of that kind of thing. And, and then winding up between those warehouses was this brook, Cranberry Brook. And I was like, wow, there I could talk to some of the old timers there, the historical people that could tell me the story of their little town. And then I could go up that brook on foot, you know, kind of like, um, you know, uh, some explorer in, the, in Africa or up the Amazon or whatever. And uh, I could then go through the where past the warehouses and underneath the turnpike. And when I told the people when I was there that morning what I was planning to do, they were looking at me skeptically and saying, no, you're not going to be able to walk up that brook. You're not going to be able to 
walk underneath the turnpike. It's all a brook. It's all water. It's a it's a big estuary essentially. And so they immediately came up with a better idea. They would lend me a kayak, and this one young man, as a school teacher, showed up, gave me all the directions I would need to overcome all these various log jams and such things on my way up. And off I went in his kayak, and I I said, "Wait, where? What am I going to do with your kayak?" When I'm up the river, and he said, oh, just leave it on the other side of the turnpike. I'll come up later and get it. And that's what I did. And it was one of the most extraordinary um, stretches of the walk, my paddling up that brook and going under the 12 lanes of the freeway and leaving his kayak and continuing on my walk. And, you know, so it went the next day. I went to a landfill that I had very deliberately spotted and thought, wow, if I could go up this active landfill and sort of talk about all of our creating of these new mountains essentially built on our wastefulness and our garbage. And um, so I reached out to the Middlesex landfill and they said, sure, let us know when you're coming. We'll, you know, give you a guided walk up to the top of the landfill. There we went that morning. And it was from there that I got my first 34 mile away glimpse of Manhattan, my destination. And saw them, you know, actively building this thing that if it continues at the pace that it's at now, within 20 or 30 years, will be the highest point south of Maine on the whole Atlantic seacoast. So that was uh, another great, uh, but a little more disturbing um, sort of, uh, you know, expedition along my route to Manhattan. Okay. Now, talk, now I'd like to ask a similar question, but just a little bit different. What were some of the things you did not like when you took your walk? You know, I didn't have a lot of, you know, sour or sad experiences, uh, really. Um, I mean, I, I met a few people who were kind of less than generous in offering to fill my water bottle or wanting me to get off their land and stuff like that. But, you know, those were mainly in the early few days. And after that, that kind of experience, thankfully, kind of waned. And I had uh, instead a lot of experiences with people who, you know, would offer me a free cappuccino or a muffin or a bagel or, you know, all kinds of funny little offerings along the way when they heard what I was doing and, you know, beers in the evening when I would check in somewhere. Um, you know, there was a lot of that kind of um, response. I, there, there was not actually much of a, a, a saga of, you know, contrary experiences or setbacks. I, I, and as I went, I got kind of increasingly adept at presenting myself and getting people to sort of go out of their way to offer me boat rides across bodies of water and that kind of thing. And it became a bit of an exercise in, um, you know, how do you expand your own sphere of where you feel like you belong and how do you um, bring people in so they kind of feel like they belong a part of your own walk. And it was a sort of an exchange of my being welcoming to people as they were in turn welcoming me. And, you know, it becomes a kind of a virtuous circle in a way of um, being able to do that. And I, you know, my trip was fairly short, 26 days, I think, for those who go on much longer pilgrimages for 
weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months, I think they could also attest that you just become more and more gifted at that kind of interaction. Okay, that's great. Uh, this is more of a general question, uh, but what were some of your observations and thoughts uh, from having done the walk? Uh, where were some thoughts uh, or observations that you gained? I mean, you know, there's a whole multitude of them. They, um, you know, that if you set out on a walk like this, what I kind of call American history at three miles an hour, that the country you encounter uh, is profoundly different than the country that you've seen and think you might know driving it, that the two worlds cross somewhat similar territory, but they're really not the same place. Um, it may seem odd to think that it's not literally the same place, but I would argue that they aren't. The, the, the road you drive down at 60 or 70 miles an hour and the road you walk down at two and a half, three miles an hour are infinitely different places. And, you know, it's worth noting that there have been 500 or so generations of humans since, you know, we began to do rudimentary farming and kind of settle in a, in a single places and not move constantly. Um, and, you know, of those 500 generations or thereabouts, um, maybe 10 of them have occurred since steam engines really upended our sense of speed and therefore our sense of time. And in the four or five generations since the automobile has come around, you know, the the regularity of that kind of speed has become our normal way of experiencing the landscape. And, you know, my point is that that time that has elapsed since we've become attuned to this sort of sped up travel has been exceedingly brief. And if you have the chance to go back to the other way of being, which was the norm for, you know, 490 of those generations, um, it just reveals to you a world that was um, the norm throughout so much of human history. And, um, you know, I really urge people to take the time to build a trip. It doesn't have to, it can even be a more, I don't know, vacation-y sort of thing, like let's go to the England and walk the Southwest Coast path, or let's go walk the Camino de Santiago in France and Spain, or, you know, let's do some portion of the Appalachian Trail. Um, and it's just a window into a very, very different way of being and of interacting with other people. And if you do it, you also realize that your spirit opens up in ways that you might not be familiar with if um, you've never done this kind of thing. And particularly so, I would argue, if you eschew the use of headphones and listening to music or, you know, no, <laughs> no knock on podcasts, but you know, just avoid the foreign inputs into your ears and just give yourself over to the observing of the season, of the days as they pass, of the different kinds of trees, and, and just make it a kind of meditation and attentiveness. That sounds good. I So what I've heard from your journey, on this journey from when you went to Washington, D.C. to New York City, is that you met many different people. And from your experience of being a reporter and those skills sets of meeting people, how did the prior experience of being a reporter help you on your walking journey? 
You know, quite a lot, uh, I'll say, because, um, you know, I've spent the bulk of my life um, professionally and otherwise traveling, um, inserting myself into other people's lives, um, asking questions of people, interacting with them. And I, you know, you become quite good at that. Um, and the better you are at that, the more people respond to you because you have a feel for it. So, you know, despite all that I said earlier about set out your door, you know, one and all, um, I do acknowledge that it would be a different experience for people that are a little less adept at it. And, um, you know, it, it just helps to know how to get around, how to, you know, in this case, I wasn't having to speak different languages to people because everybody I met spoke English, but still you are, in a way, speaking different languages to people, um, depending on the where, you know, what kind of environment you are, what sort of people they are. And so that sort of attunedness to, um, you know, different ways of interacting as a reporter has definitely been helpful. And I've, you know, even before I became a reporter, I hitchhiked all around the country and many, many parts of the world and had been pretty adept at just putting myself out in weird circumstances in way distant parts of the country. So, you know, my sense of being at ease just out there um, is certainly a lot higher than the average person's would be. You mentioned that you were in many different places of world hitchhiking. Did you want to describe some of those experiences? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a long ago day now, and I write about this some in the book, the decline and death of hitchhiking as a way that you could get around the United States. But I did that, you know, leading up to and kind of ending in the early 80s. I, you know, traveled all through Mexico and parts of Latin America hitchhiking. <laughs> Sounds funny to say that now. I, you know, jumped on trains and, and even hitchhiked around parts of Asia. Um, you know, I took a whole long trip around the world when I was in my early 20s um, during a break during college. And a lot of it was just sort of, you know, rough traveling, not just sort of, you know, taking the established trains and, and, um, and airplanes. Um, you know, again, a somewhat lost world, but not entirely. Um, so there was a lot of adventurous um, travel like that that definitely makes you more adept and more sort of skilled and also a lot less fearful of, you know, things that others might think might happen. Okay. Uh, another question. Are you planning on any additional walks? Yeah, I am. I have a bunch of different things that I'm contemplating at the moment. And as I think about a next book, I'm uh, thinking about, um, you know, building a book around, not necessarily, you know, the similar sort of thing, walk out my door to another place, but maybe a series of um, different explorations of the American landscape and the American story, um, but largely built around more intimate context with the places than you would have if you were doing it by vehicle. Looking forward to hearing those stories uh, when you have them. Final question is, do you have any additional thoughts you'd like to add? You know, uh, I could add lots of thoughts. I guess my main one for anybody still listening to us at this point is, if you're intrigued um, or if you've been mulling something that you thought it would be fun to do, I've had people send me emails. I read your book. 
I've been thinking for a while about riding my bike across the country. I'm resolved now to do it. And, you know, there is just that get out there and do it. I talk in the book about um, exploiting the seams that any of us have in our lives, the little break and the little breaks in regular order. You know, you're coming out of college. Um, you've maybe left the military. You might have even lost your job, but have some spare cash or you're going to be like relocating across the country and take the time to insert something into that time that can make it, you know, stand out time, an unusual time. And it might even be coming out of more unfortunate things like a divorce or um, in my case, I've gone through this whole cancer scare. And when I kind of came out the other end of it, I was like, all right, this is the time to do that thing I've been thinking about doing. And you know, we only have so much time on earth as we know, and we know that, and yet in many times we don't quite live um, with that urgency of that knowledge. And um, you can craft really magical, um, really highly unusual experiences by just walking at your door with a certain degree of intention and a certain prior thought. Uh, and, you know, you can be talking about it for years later because of all the things that came of it, which was what happened for me on, on the month or so I took uh, taking the stroll to New York. Well, those are the questions I have. I do appreciate you taking your time to talk to me. Thank you. Absolutely, Mike. I really appreciate it. And I, I appreciate you reaching out. Interview guest opinions are the opinions of the guests and may not necessarily reflect the opinions of Live Your Life Learning. The purpose of the content is to provide insight, research, and opinion, not to provide professional, legal, or tax advice. Please see an individual expert for individual guidance. Thanks for listening. Thank you.